Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode four of The Great Game, an Australian mega game podcast. Uh, in this episode, we're going to be interviewing Justin and James from Sydney Mega Games on their game, So Say We All. Um, now, just heads up, this is a podcast we recorded um, later in December in 2019, so it might be slightly outdated. You know, it was back from the time when we could actually attend Mega Games in person, so <laughs> crazy as that seems now. So maybe some slight outdated stuff there. Um, yeah, but uh, just a few announcements first. So there's a surprising amount of stuff happening um, at the end of May, which is really exciting for Mega Games. First up, on May 16th, um, John Keyworth is going to be doing a playtest of his online Mega Game, The Anubis Heresy. Uh, which is based on but legally distinct from Game Workshop's uh, 40k universe. Um, I played in the first playtest of this one, and it was uh, really awesome. Very uh, great kind of rules-light mega game with really awesome technological integration with Roll20. A lot of really cool tech stuff going on there. Um, definitely check that out if you're interested. It's probably a bit too late to sign up for the playtest itself, but I'm sure once that actually gets going as a full mega game, that'll be posted around the usual places like Mega Game Assembly and Mega Game Makers. Um, next up, we are actually doing a, a playtest of our online mega game, Dark and Stormy Nights. Uh, that'll be on May 29th, the second playtest, and I'm super excited for it. Um, how would you feel about the first playtest, Pat? Yeah, I think it went really well. Um, we have, we've got some pretty tight, light mechanics that people really enjoyed, and the players that we got together uh, seemed to really keep, take to the theme. So I think it's in good shape, and I'm looking forward to the 29th, where we'll be looking at uh, how it applies to a bit of a, a longer-form game. So it should be good. Absolutely. Super excited for it. Yeah, I think it's... it's. I love the gothic horror theme, and um, I think we've really focused on keeping it rules light and roleplay heavy, which I feel like mm. is where these online mega games are really hitting the best, really, for me at least, personally. Um, so excited for that second playtest. And then finally, on May the 30th, uh, there's going to be a um, Mega Games in the Future Symposium by True North Mega Games, uh, which looks awesome. It'll just be basically... Uh, a chat f starting at uh, 12 o'clock UK time. Um, I've got it here. There's going to be four sections, one on presentations from designers, breakout sessions for upcoming games, an open forum on gender equality in mega games, and a exhibition on the art of mega games, uh, which all sounds awesome if you can make it with your time zone. That sounds like a fantastic event, um, which you can find on the True North Mega Games Facebook page. Um, yeah, but without further ado, uh, let's launch into the episode with Justin and James. Uh, thanks for having a chat with us, guys. Um, if you just want to introduce yourselves. James. All right. <laughs> uh, my name is James Archer. I'm a PhD student and I've been uh, involved in the Sydney Mega Gamers for as long as we've been doing events as a player and a moderator. Uh, my name is Justin Delaney. Uh, my introduction is identical to James's. I'm also <laughs> a PhD student. I've also been here since the beginning and I'm also a player slash moderator. Perfect. Um, so yeah, all of our locals know you guys from the early days, um, 2014, and now you have designed your first game, So Say We All. Did you want to just give a little elevator pitch on 
on that, what it's about? I think uh, ultimately, at its core, So Say We All is a game about deceit and mistrust and social deduction. Uh, but to make it a little bit more accessible to our predominantly uh, nerdy audience, uh, we've wrapped it in a, a science fiction inspired by Battlestar Galactica-esque kind of wrapper. Uh, but yeah, ultimately, it's a social deduction game about trying to figure out who the undercover people are amongst all the other players. Cool. And and just briefly before we jump in, do you think that it it achieved that on the day? Was it a social social deduction game and did people get that out of it? Uh, I think so. Uh, it took a little while for people to to investigate or to flesh out that aspect of the game, but towards the middle and definitely by the end, people were... I think actively feeling out that part of the game, and it became kind of the the major focus of everybody, rather than resource management or crisis or dealing with crises. I think that once the game got to the point where the uh, infiltrators were messing with the production and the uh, well being of the fleet enough, that prompted people to start getting really serious about it. Great. Okay. Um, all right. Well, I thought we might jump in and just quickly talk about, we'll go back a little bit from the event and talk about the design. You've kind of covered a bit there where the core concept of the game has come from and the theme has been inspired by this sci-fi world uh, from Battlestar Galactica. So um, were there any other inspirations that came to you beyond that? Uh, I don't think so. Um, I remember when uh in isolation of your own idea pat that you discussed with us uh james and i came up with our own idea for a mega game i think after uh, unrest in idranor and we thought that you know this sort of situation would be really a really good opportunity for a mega game uh but i think that was kind of i would say probably close to 100 percent of our inspiration kind of came from battlestar galactica we didn't really pull a lot from anywhere else uh, for me, it was the, the Battlestar Galactica board game, which sort of is a, a very basic, well, I'd say basic compared to a mega game, basic introduction to this sort of thing, but only for a couple of players. And I'd always thought doing that, but as a mega game with 30, 40 people would be just a blast. Right. And um, a lot of people who would be listening might be familiar with the, the other mega game based on Battlestar, which is... Uh, Den of Wolves, which I was lucky enough to play um, last year, or maybe it was even earlier this year. I'm losing track. Um, but, <laughs> but um, yeah. So, and, and I was I was very interested when you guys started working on this, and I talked to you about that, and I said, do you want to, you know, do you want to debrief on how Den of Wolves plays and all that, and you really wanted to do it in isolation. Um, so. I just thought that was fascinating that there's two different games and now that I ha- haven't played yours, but from what I've seen, they're pretty different. Um, a lot of similarities because of the theme, but very different outcomes. Um, you mentioned the social deduction side of it, though. Are there any specific games or, or you know activities that it, you pulled from for that or was it starting from the ground up? I think we largely started from the ground up. I think uh, in further revisions of the game, I would like to like work in uh, a larger focus on that and I would like it to be a sort of mechanical possibly a mechanical thing with but um no I think especially with this sort of game and incorporating that sort of social deduction um 
aspect into a game with, you know, 40 players. There wasn't really anything that had done that before. So there wasn't a lot to borrow from that could, you know, reasonably cope with this size of game. So I think largely we just designed it all ourselves. I would, I think that with a lot of the previous mega games, there's always been people who have been acting counter to everyone else, but uh, it's usually not explicitly stated at the start of the game that there are this many people uh, fulfilling this role. And so having that sort of briefing for all the players really set the scene for the, um, the goal of figuring out who's betraying them to try and flush them out. Out the airlock. <laughs> that really is a, a change of pace for our games because, yeah, you're right, we have had a lot where there's where there's discontent or um, sown within teams or people working against each other or that kind of thing, but it's not usually explicitly this is a key part of the game and you need to, you need to deal with it. Um, just quickly on the development, did you want to just run through the process you went through, um, just broad strokes? How, how did you develop the game? What tools did you use? How did you get? Um, how did you run through sort of the event management stuff? How did you find that being your first game? So, uh, luckily, uh, we had just finished working on As the Fire Dies, uh, led by you, Patrick. So <laughs> we pretty much emulated your organization style. So everything was run on uh, or hosted on Google Drive that we all had access to. We tried to have everything nice and separated and organized, and uh, try and uh, dish out responsibilities to everyone so that we could get everything done within a without putting too much time pressure on ourselves at the end. Uh, and I will say the last two weeks before the game for me was pretty much flat out doing mega game stuff, but I feel like we were mm. quite well prepared overall. Yeah, I think we, yeah, we were largely on top of it uh, right up until, yeah, you know, I'm sure you're familiar with this, Pat. You're like, you feel like you're on top of it and you hit, you know, two weeks before the game and you've got to do all like that last minute production, like making the minis and all that sort of stuff. And yeah, we are, uh, I shamelessly ripped off your organizational style that you introduced us to from As the Fire Dies. I think that, I think it helped. I think everything was pretty clear. It was just good having everything there that we could uh, have access to. I didn't have to constantly bother you for any files I needed. I just went on and did it myself or if there was anything I wanted to add, I could just add it in. I didn't have to send something to you or wait for this or that. So I think it really helped the, the workflow. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's that's really good to hear. I'm glad that um, it was successful in that regard. And um, I'm and also regarding the, the you know the last couple of weeks before the game and that last minute rush. I feel I'm I'm really the more and more I run these things, I'm getting convinced that that's part of the creative process. <laughs> and you can't if you don't have it, um, things won't go well. And um, I, the only time that I haven't felt that that pressure was with with INC. And as you guys know, I feel like that was the game that let me down most. So I think there's something to it that, you know, the last minute rush really does indicate that you're you're about to deliver something big. I think it's, you, 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 as you're developing, as you're coming up with ideas and making stuff, there's a lot of things that you're thinking, oh, I'll deal with that later. I'll deal with that later. I'm not sure about that. And then you hit two weeks and think, oh, now's the time. I have to force something. Yeah, can't put off these decisions anymore. It's time to pick something. One thing that really stood out uh, for that, uh, in that regard, for this game, was the uh, what the uh, hostile team was going to do. So another thing that's quite different from other mega games is there was the 
human fleet of survivors with the infiltrators in them. And then there was the bad guys, the so-called Ashiva, who were uh, tasked with hunting down and destroying the humans. So there was a very strong us versus them vibe, which both helped keep the fleet together and foster a bit of cooperativity, cooperation. (laughs) Edit that out. (laughs) And uh, it gave us two quite different... uh, mechanics to try and figure out what the human fleet did didn't necessarily uh, determine what the Ashiva fleet could do so how they were going to pass the time and how they were going to go about what they did was sort of uh, for me put off a lot until the very end where we had to nail something down and luckily I think we came up with something uh, that worked well in this game and we had a great group of players on their team who made it work yeah, it's a, that's also another recurring theme. It seems it's the players that really get their hands dirty and get involved and do some interpretation sometimes and really drive some of the things you, you weren't sure would would, would work. Um, on the on the um, just the last thing, sort of on the game and the design and everything before we get get into the nitty gritty, uh, I was just going to ask you about the the tools of the of the trade of the day. Um, what kind of technology did you need to use? What kind of thing props did you have? Um, I've seen, you, you know, we've seen the photos of all the little miniatures. What else did you have going to sort of help aid the the game? So we had, uh, as as usual, I think, as I think in every single mega game that uh, we've run in Sydney, there was a, a dashboard to help the players keep track of where they were in the game. You know, what turn it was, uh, how long they had left in this turn. You know, because uh, some aspects of the game, you know, had to be accomplished within a certain within a certain time frame. Um, but that was really it in terms of kind of the elect uh, the digital or you know computerized things that we had there. Uh, we had one dashboard for the human fleet, uh, and then there was a, a smaller, uh, less intricate dashboard that was also created for the Ashiva team that they could refer to. Uh, and then we had the props. Obviously, we had some game maps uh, that we made. We also had some ship cards. So each each team had one ship card on their table, and that was used to track uh, both the status of their ship, so if any locations or systems were damaged, uh, and also the, the number of uh, people they had aboard at any given time, uh, along with where those uh, people were being committed, whether they were being used for resource production or, uh, you know, to operate fighter craft or man some weapons or conduct repairs. There were spaces for all of those things on their team cards. And then at various stages throughout the turns and kind of where the majority of uh, our record keeping was done, the moderators would come around and they would note down these things and then report back to a one uh, logistics moderator we had, which with their own table, and every turn, they would, uh, you know, take this information that the mods had brought them about uh, which team was producing what resource or whether they were upgrading their ship. And they had their own uh, sheet where they would track all of this and control the resource flow into and out of the game to make sure that everything ran smoothly. And I think for the most part, it worked out all right. Um, I'll just add... Uh, for the uh, rule book, so we just had a regular document for that, just laid out everything in order. Uh, what would have been good, I think, is having a, 
an online rule book that was uh, easily searchable or uh, easily indexed. You could jump around to parts and find the rules you're interested in very quickly. Uh, because I found a lot of the conversation I was having with players and even some of our moderators, uh, where they were asking me something, I would just be opening up the rule book and finding it myself. And so mm. empowering the players and even the mods to be able to do that themselves would take a bit of pressure off us and yeah, just give them a bit more to do in their turn if they've got questions. Yeah, you did have the good idea of printing out uh, quick reference sheets that we kind of scattered around the uh, around the venue. You know, at the battle maps, we had the rules for combat, which were quickly summarized for players to refer to. And then I think on their tables, we had a short breakdown of how the turns would go. Hmm. Yeah, so it, it listed uh, the three... Uh, phases of the game reconciliation negotiation uh, commitment and then negotiation uh, what they should be doing in those phases and things they need to keep track of so just for the resource production ships uh, it mentioned that they needed to be putting manpower to produce resources and they're responsible for uh, well doing whatever they want with those resources once they have them whether that be to hoard them or to distribute them out to the other ships or to trade for them so to give them a bit of a prompt to know what they need to do Right, that sounds actually really organized. Um, it's, it's the middle ground that I haven't been able to find with some games in the past between having a really succinct, plain English to the point rule book and having a really nice, fluffy, fancy one that people can really sink their teeth into and also having those kind of quick reference guides. So it sounds like that was a good approach to have a good combo of the two. Yeah, I, a lot of the development... Uh... I found personally, it was trying to balance that having solid mechanical rules and presenting it to the players in a way that was uh, not dry mechanical, accessible and uh, in the language of the world. So otherwise it just gets too much like a giant board game, which is not really what a mega game is. So that was a bit of a challenge. And uh, I think having rules that are the error on the side of simplicity rather than complexity really helps achieve that. Yeah, great. Um, okay, uh, we'll move on to get into some of the mechanics a bit more, hear about um, the rules a little bit. Um, like you, you guys have already set the scene. It's this sci-fi um, game of sort of survival and uh, one team is pursuing the other. Um, you've got infiltrators, suspicion, paranoia. Um, what what would you say are the key mechanical functions of the game? Like, what were the key areas which were running throughout the entire game? Uh, I've prepared a list. <laughs> uh, and Justin, yeah, tell me if there's something I missed. So I pretty much put it down to exploration, combat, production, science, and events. These are sort of the core areas that the players had to uh, address if they wanted to uh, survive and make it out to the end of the game. Right, okay. And... Could you run me through each of those just briefly? What what, what were the players um, doing in each of those sort of spheres? So start off with exploration. We had a galaxy map that linked out a number of star systems uh, and the fleet could do faster than light FTL jumps to different systems and uh, send scouts out to neighboring systems from there. So that was to both uh, find new resources they could use uh, to advance the... Uh, plot line we had for them which was to triangulate their position and eventually try and jump back to earth and also to flee the enemy fleet who was hunting them so each team had a role 
the navigations officer who was responsible for uh, that part. The next section was combat. That's if the two fleets meet each other, they would be in combat. And so the communications officer was responsible for managing their ship in the uh, combat theater on the battle map. So independent of the main game timer, we had uh, 30 second turns where each ship had to act. And as they went through in order, each ship would go uh, until all the ships had gone and then it repeats. So everything's still happening in the background. The rest of their teammates are still doing what they normally do. Uh, but hopefully the human fleet in that regard would be trying to organize an FDL jump to escape. I think it's uh, worth just interjecting here with the combat. Uh, one thing that we experimented with, and I think we'll keep it in subsequent games, was the idea that the turn order was not fixed. There was actually a player responsible for choosing the turn order. And so, and every ship, every team had to act before a team could go again. And so first it was the, there was a position within the human government called the fleet commander. And uh, in the first round of combat, the human fleet commander would pick the order that everyone acted in. And then once that was over, then the Ashiva fleet commander would pick the new order. And so there was a lot of consideration had to be given to, you know, a lot of judicious decisions had to be made, especially in like the end game combats where resources were running thin and the fleet was barely keeping going. Right. Okay. It sounds like a, a unique approach to that sort of initiative order for combat. Um, what were the, and, and did you say science was um, another jurisdiction? Uh, yep. So science, uh, they would essentially, the fleet would need to generate research points to unlock new technologies. There was a uh, chief scientist as another government position who was responsible for organizing that. So the way that the fleet would generate science is they could generate, uh, they could assign manpower on the military ship, the prosecutor, to generate a little bit of science each turn. Uh, but some of the civilian ships could respec their uh, their production into research and generate a lot more. Uh, and they would just get points, and then every six points they generated, uh, you know, just an arbitrary number, uh, they would unlock a new uh, uh, few technologies that the chief scientists could choose from to open up. And then science also became uh, important. So I tried to tie in some of these like satellite aspects into the main objectives that the human players had, which was uh, they had a threefold objective going into the game. So the first one, as James has already touched on, they had to figure out where they were uh, relative to Earth so they could return. And that was accomplished just by exploration. And then once they figured out where they were, they had to calculate um, they had to do the jump calculations, you know, figure out the course and the optimum trajectory and other sciencey buzzwords uh, <laughs> in order to get back to Earth. And the way they accomplished that was they had to generate a large amount of science points. So, because I was conscious that something like, you know, technology progression is often on the fringes of a mega game. You know, it's only a few teams seem to, you know, really bite into it. So I wanted some way to bring it to the forefront so that everyone would be kind of invested in the progress of the fleet. And I, I think that sort of happened once once the players propagated that information out that they needed to just start generating research points in bulk. Everyone kind of got behind it. Yeah. Yeah, nice. That sounds really good. Um, that That's often a sort of um, a, a misgiving of some rule sets and designs where there's little sub games. I, I'm definitely guilty of it. Um, sub games that don't have a big 
a big picture connection so they can easily just fall to the wayside if if certain people aren't involved in them so that sounds really good um did you have a few other jurisdictions so uh we had production so that was based on the manpower that each ship had available uh committing them to certain tasks to produce resources that were required for survival so the two resources we had were food and fuel we tried to keep it simple uh i think we've learned from some previous mega games that having too many resources and too many things to do with them you do have a lot of things that do get ignored and it becomes a bit uh cumbersome both logistically for the moderator team and for the players to handle all that so we tried to keep it simple with just food and fuel all the people needed to be fed with food so that's pretty pretty simple and if the ships needed to do an ftl jump each ship needed a certain amount of fuel to make that jump uh, apart from that resolving events required food fuel and manpower as well as uh missing something and upgrades upgrades required fuel to complete so that's the main production side and the the thing here is that there are some ships that produce certain resources and some ships that don't produce any unless they specifically outfit themselves for it so there is an inherent imbalance in the resource production in the game and so that gives some players or some teams an opportunity for um trading or for extortion or for leverage and others are challenged that they need to solve they need food and they need fuel uh and we found that the game ended up pretty um cooperative and i think that's because there was a, a overall excess of resources being available to the point where at the end when the fleet needed to make the final jump they were struggling for fuel they'll still mostly enough around, but one ship had been hoarding a lot of fuel we learnt at the very end. <laughs> Classic uh, Sydney Mega Gamers <laughs> uh, behaviour. Yeah. That, um, sorry, just before we move on, because I, I think you do have a few others on the list, but regarding that abundance of resources that came through in the day, was that planned or was that unintentional? Yeah, so when, when we designed the game, we like crunched the numbers and figured out, you know, what the consumption would be, you know, if they had to feed uh, 58 manpower per turn, you know, they would need to be producing that amount of food. Otherwise they would start like spiraling, you know, and they wouldn't be able to recover from it. Uh, and likewise with fuel, you know, the f overall the fleet required a certain amount of fuel to perform an FTL jump. And so if we wanted them to be able to jump, you know, once per turn, you know, they would need to be able to produce a certain amount of fuel. Uh, and then, you know, there are other miscellaneous things that cost those resources as well, like events or, you know, there can be player-driven things that crop up. And to be safe, you know, we thought, well, it was best to key it so there was, if the fleet was running at its uh, maximum capacity for resource production, like just using the dedicated resource ships, that they could keep themselves afloat and make a tiny bit uh, of surplus. But if one of those dedicated resource ships went down, then everyone else would have to pitch in to pick up the slack and it would become a much more difficult situation. But we thought that it would be too difficult if the, resource, if the dedicated resource production ships couldn't support the fleet, then it would uh, restrain or uh, restrict the players from 
you know, dealing with events or doing upgrades or, you know, con- or coming up with, you know, player-driven things that they want to conduct. You know, if we say that's going to cost three fuel and the fleet doesn't have three fuel spare, you know, it, I think that would restrict player engagement. So we decided consciously to provide them with a little bit of a surplus. I'd say that that surplus is just regards to uh, the baseline feeding in all the people and uh, doing the jumps that they needed. And we should move into events because that's the other area where the resource would be spent. So we had a number of pre-written events that were either challenges or opportunities, which would either uh, give the players an option to uh, invest their resources to get something or to invest their resources to negate a negative effect. So that pretty much gave the other uh, the other outlet for their resources to be spent. Uh, so we just had uh, at most two events happening uh, at a time and the events coming out were largely determined by the status of the fleet and uh, the fleet morale, which was uh, a vague idea that we didn't really follow too strongly during the game because, you know, things get a bit out of hand and chaotic. But that sort of determined uh, what events came out. If they had good morale, they should be getting opportunities and positive events. If they had low morale, they should be having challenges. So that would encourage the fleet to do things to keep morale high, uh, which executing random players did not. So uh, that that happened a bit. So that wasn't super successful, but that's something we've learned from. <laughs> um, and so, okay, so you've you've run me through the um, five. Are those the those the five key sort of spheres of mechanics? That's what I wrote down. Justin, yeah. is there anything major we sort of missed? No, I think that pretty much covers uh, most of the game. If we forgot something, it was probably very minor, and we might be able to touch on it later. Right. Okay. Um, well, just before we move into talking about the actual day um, a few weeks ago when you ran this, um, which of those five do each of you um, sort of relate to most? Which do you think was the most successful or the most fun or even just the most enjoyable to design? Probably the combat, I think. Well, that was what I had uh, the most uh, involvement with during the day. So James and I have both kind of... Uh, shared what you typically assign as like the lead mod role um, because we both, you know, were heavily involved in designing it. We figured it would just make sense if, you know, there were two people around to put out fires instead of one. Uh, But also as part of our kind of purview that we assigned to ourselves on the day, we would also facilitate uh, fleet combat, which we anticipated, I think, correctly as being, you know, potentially uh, one of the most, you know, intense situations where you have to really know the rules and make quick decisions uh and so i can uh kind of ended up just uh taking over that while james went around and did other stuff and occasionally updated me on what was going on uh but i think yeah we we did some play testing and um and design work and i think what we came up with was pretty balanced overall i think it worked quite smoothly uh, and seamlessly, and a lot of the players said they enjoyed it. Um, so I think that worked pretty well. Yeah, the challenge with designing the combat was that we wanted the fleet to have a uh, feeling of danger, and we didn't want them trying to stand and fight. We wanted them to feel like they had to uh, flee. So 
during the combat, we needed them to not have an advantage, but also not be so uh, disadvantaged that they could be easily destroyed and ruin the game in the first combat. So that took a bit of work, and I think we got it to the point where it, it, it did uh, go pretty well with that. Although one thing I heard uh, as feedback from the Ashiva team was that the way the combat turn the combat turns happened, the human fleet commander would determine the order of all the ships, including when the Ashiva ships went, and then the Ashiva fleet commander would do the same thing after everyone's gone. So they would have a chance to attack first on the next round. However, it's I I I heard that uh, the human fleet managed to get away generally before they the Ashiva got to have a turn so there wasn't much chance for them to do stuff yeah I think that's absolutely true but uh, I'm gonna uh, try and absolve myself of any responsibility here I think that largely um, came down to a few things Uh, there were three turns in a row where the Ashiva was tracking the human fleet and basically just followed them through jumps from system to system. So there were three consecutive turns of combat. Uh, during this time, uh, none of the Ashiva infiltrators, you know, bothered to try and sabotage the ships. Uh, and so, like, I, I guess it does point out that, yeah, we could have balanced it a little bit more. But, you know, I think there was probably ample opportunity to cripple at least one ship and kind of force the humans to dig in for at least one round of combat rather than letting them all get away. Um, but yeah, I ultimately, I think it was still the best choice. I couldn't think of a fairer way to do combat other than just randomly assigning it every single combat but i thought that would have been a bit too clunky i feel like uh, there might be a way to sorry to interrupt just to yeah. add uh distribute out the ashiva ships uh more throughout the turn order and i'm not i don't have a suggestion for that or how to do that mechanically but i think having them uh acting um if they have two ships you know uh sometime in the first half of the round and then sometime in the second half of the round so that uh you're always going to have uh, them acting before some of the human ships. And I think that would make it a bit more uh, interesting. Yeah, I suppose. And I, yeah, we could just have that, you know, seeing as they typically are always the ones initiating combat, they could have this by default, one of their ships always gets to go first. And then the human fleet commander picks the order. Um, so speaking of future games, uh, it sounds like the, like, Justin, you're saying that the combat was sort of your most investment invested part of the game, and you, it sounds like it went pretty well, all things considered. Um, are you in a similar boat, James, or do you have any other highlights from the the design process? Or I I enjoyed working with all the the technologies and the science, and it was a lot of fun coming up with uh, what they could upgrade and how it would affect the fleet and give them an advantage without being too uh, powerful. Uh, and of course, that was one of the mechanics that they only got a few of the technologies rather than a lot of them. So it's a little, not disappointing, but you always like mm. to see them do more. Yeah, I'm noticing that's that's been a bit of a recurring thing. We had a similar issue with As the Fire Dies, where we came up with all of these things they could do, and they only got to explore a small <laughs> amount of it. I think the underlying causes are largely similar, in that the person 
the player that was in charge of that maybe had a, you know, in So Say We All, the person who was ultimately in charge of, you know, directing the research efforts, you know, which is the president, you know, telling the chief scientists what to do. The president was, for most of the game, an infiltrator. So I think they did a really good job of uh, obstructing the development of the technologies by kind of distracting the chief scientist with other things. One thing that I, I loved from the game on that note was the president had the uh, a basic Ashiva detector technology so they could, once per turn, once every 30 minutes, pick uh, one of the ships in the fleet and they would be told whether there was an infiltrator uh, on the crew of that ship or not. And so our infiltrator president came to me for three turns in a row and said, that ship, that ship, that ship. And she managed to pick all three other infiltrators in the first three picks so and she didn't do she didn't tell anyone what she'd learnt. obviously uh so i'd say that that technology was used in an interesting way uh not what we were uh anticipating but that was a lot of fun to experience i am yeah i am sad that they never got to the uh there was a second tier of that where the president could test individual players uh, but that never never came up in technology, unfortunately. But mm. implementing that had another aspect of the game that comes to mind now that I enjoyed developing, um, similar to one that I developed in As the Fire Dies, which was the uh, executive order system. And some of these technologies, especially the uh, the president's, especially the individual like a Shiva detector technology required the president to pass a law, basically, you know, curtailing the rights of the of the fleet citizens. Uh, and so there were a few there were a few instances of that. The um, unfortunately, much the same with the technologies, the president didn't really uh, feel out a lot of them. Uh, when they did, it was often humorous and funny, especially the the very last law that the uh, president passed which I think everyone got a good chuckle out of. Uh, so what happened was there was, and I'll just quickly uh, segue into that. There was um, the only way to uh, weed out infiltrators was the captain of a ship could imprison a player. And then after jumping through some other hoops, if the captain that had imprisoned them believed that they were an infiltrator, they could uh, flush them out the airlock. And this happened a few times uh, to no success. I think three three human players in a row were airlocked. Uh, I believe so. Uh, and so things were getting bad. So the president passed a law that uh, enhanced the civil rights of people in the fleet so they could no longer be imprisoned. <laughs> and uh, everyone was happy, sort of. They didn't quite realize that they'd lost their kind of major weapon. Uh, and then right towards the end of the game, the president same president did a complete 180 uh, and she repealed that law and brought in one that allowed the president to summarily execute people without imprisoning them <laughs> uh, and immediately exercised that on two players and uh nobody seemed to bat an eye i think everyone and she i think unwittingly picked one of the infiltrators and she picked one human player and just yeah immediately threw him straight out the airlock it is always interesting, um, both both with that sort of story and going back to what you're talking about with the technologies, um, what what players do with the ideas that you give them and also the things that they never reach. 
you were you were saying how we saw that in as the fire dies i saw it a lot in for the crown as well and i think um i think there's a bit of a fog of war that you get in when you're designing things where you know everything and you have all this knowledge and sometimes it's easy to forget or or anticipate how the players are meant to connect those dots i know i do that a lot um and so I'm always surprised and taken aback, but I shouldn't be when players just don't unlock that extra thing or they don't think that maybe something might be possible so they pursue it. Um, the world is their oyster and they've always got crazy, crazy ideas and interpretations and it it keeps you on your feet, um, to say the least. <laughs> we, we give them a lot of tools that they can use and things for them to do and then they go and come up with other completely ridiculous, unanticipated things that they want to do. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, yeah, I always enjoy like seeing the wacky things that players come up with. Though. Oh, it's 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 the epitome of a mega game. <laughs> um, so I might just segue us in. What what I was going to ask there um, was just about the mechanics. You've talked a fair bit about how it all worked, how you designed it, and it sounds like you're pretty happy with a lot of it. Um, just broadly speaking, would you go and run this again um, in a couple of weeks, or do you think it needs a bit of work? I think we could. I think yep. there's obviously there's some minor refinement. You know, there were some some areas that maybe you know weren't fully realized as we've already like outlined, or that players weren't satisfied with. But I think I would I would say, and I hope James agrees that we could probably run this almost you know kind of out of the box again uh, if we had to with you know minimal tuning and refinement. Yeah, I agree. There's obviously a lot of things uh, in hindsight that you would change, but I think it's if we if we had to, we could absolutely run it again with not too many changes. Uh, a few things that did uh, stand out were so I'll explain some of the uh, restrictions of rules we had. So for players to travel between different ships in the game, they needed shuttle cards. So that was to try and stop people just running. Uh, everywhere they wanted to go without some sort of uh, mechanic for that. And we also wanted players to be able to, we wanted a player to stay on their ship at, every, at all times. So we had the rule that at least one player had to be at their table at all times. So uh, this led to a lot of players uh, sitting around doing nothing, which was not what we want, obviously. Uh, and so that's something I think possibly needs uh, some revision. And while I'm not ready to throw out the rules for uh, keeping a player at their table and the having the shuttle cards and only a few per ship for them to travel around with, I think changing the responsibilities of the different roles of the players would help that a lot. Yeah, I agree. So one thing that uh, stood out was the battle map was only accessible by the comms officers and the navigation uh, the, the galaxy map was only accessible by the navigation officers. Uh, and the captain didn't really have that many mechanical things that they could do that was exclusive to them. So I think one simple change would be allowing the captain to go view those maps uh, if their officer was there. And while not interact with it the same way that the specific officer could, they could get an overview of what was happening in the combat or with the exploration, what the plans were, and relay that to the rest of their team or give them a better... Uh, overview to do their captainly duties you're right okay well it sounds really positive um that you guys have already put some thought into how you could tweak things or improve things and you and you did send that survey out and get a lot of feedback that i've i've heard is pretty positive and and, and constructive 
Um, so I think that's a really good sign, especially since this was kind of your first design that you're that it's so so tight and, and ready to go again. That's that's great. Um, I just thought uh, we'll, just before we wrap up, thought we'd talk about the day itself. Um, any highlights? How did the logistics at the venue go? Would you use that again? Anything that popped up that just you had to throw out and improvise because of you know hindsight? Um, major lessons learned. How, how did the day sort of teach you? Uh, well, I think uh, something we knew going in from our experience with As the Fire Dies and also participating in all of your previous games is that no mega game ever proceeds without some sort of issues, you know, that are not related to the game itself. I think uh, um, there's a sorry to interrupt. I think the the UK lads have a saying that no mega game you know, survives first contact with the players, and I think it's pretty true. <laughs> yeah, oh, absolutely. But yeah, so say we all was no exception. We had some. Uh, ultimately, it ended up being quite minor issues um, that I don't think derailed the game too much. It was more just kind of it. Uh, it took took us a little bit to deal with it so i think the game got started a little bit later than we wanted to but it didn't hurt us too much in the end but yeah i don't think i don't think there was anything major we encountered uh james you want to add anything before we like get into the actual events of the day um yeah i just have to say the 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 space was pretty good for what we wanted uh we needed to have the issue of a team away from the other players and so we had them off in a different room and that gave them uh both the privacy to scheme their own schemes uh it kept them separate from the humans so they couldn't overhear anything they shouldn't have and it meant once combat started they could march down the hallway making a big fuss and get everyone to their battle stations which was always fun yeah i i agree i think the venue was uh aside once we got uh the kind of the that initial issue out of the way i think the venue itself was actually really really good there was yeah, a lot of space so we could kind of have things the things we wanted to be separate, we could have them separate, and the things we wanted to be really close together, we could have close together, and they didn't really, you know, you didn't have to have players that were supposed to be in two different areas kind of trying to shout over each other. So I think that, you know, the, the actual setup of the day of, of the space was really good. Uh, one, I guess, setup and venue-related thing that I would mention is I think having a... Uh, a microphone or some sort of PA system that the players uh, can just use whenever they want uh, would really help uh, communicate what's going on in the fleet. So uh, when players want to make an announcement or they just need to make something known, just let them get up and say something that everyone has to hear. Uh, It would have helped with us making announcements. We had to shout over people. Uh, And I think that would help them uh, control the narrative of the game themselves a bit more, which I think is always a, a, a good thing if the players sort of take over what the story is and how everything's being communicated. It takes some work off our hands and it, I think it's just a fun thing uh, for the players. Yeah, for sure. It's it's always made a big difference for the events that I've run that you guys have probably witnessed as well. The ones where we did have that kind of um, tool at hand, uh, it's made a big difference. Yeah. Um, and likewise in the game that the few games that I've played in myself, especially over in Wellington with Denner Wolves, um, as the Admiral of the fleet, it was really useful for that tool to be there for me. So I think, it, yeah, it's a it's a really quick win to add a lot to the game. Um, 
so event-wise, uh, each of you, top moment, what would you say? And will you will you disagree? Uh, top moment. Uh, yeah, my top moment was uh, towards the, the very end of the game, uh, the human fleet had just finished its calculations for the return jump, and they'd figured out the amount of fuel they would need, and they didn't have enough at the time, so it was time to go time to really knuckle down on the fuel production. And one of the one of the dedicated fuel producing ships, the Harry Stamper, uh, they were pretty confident that they didn't have any infiltrators aboard, so they quarantined themselves. So players were not allowed to visit their table, so they were relatively safe from hostile action. Uh, but then the executive officer of the prosecutor who controls the guns uh, and who was an infiltrator turned to me and said, I want to destroy that ship. And they blew it up in front of the rest of the fleet and took out a significant chunk of the fleet's fuel and crippled its fuel-producing capabilities. It's pretty great. Amazing. And he got away with it for far longer than he should have. (laughs) (laughs) That's definitely the kind of um, catastrophe you can't really write in, you know, that having someone deep cover like that and then making that decision um it's pretty a pretty good way to go out um james would you do you have any other highlights or would you agree with that uh that was a pretty great moment uh but for me that my favorite moment was uh the ending so we decided uh near the end of the game actually we didn't really plan this out that once the fleet was ready to make the final jump uh back to earth uh we were gonna bring in the Ashiva fleet who uh would have detected the FDL drives spooling up for a big yeah. jump. So they or some had other been tracking nonsense. them. They actually found them the turn beforehand, uh, and then okay. with some quick decision making from myself and Griff, who was the moderator overseeing the Ashiva team, uh, we he managed to convince them to hold off for one turn and come in as the fleet was trying to jump away. So uh, that gave the the ending of the game. Uh, uh, a bit of flavor so they had uh the final combat where all the ships were trying to make that final jump and the Ashiva team were trying to stop them uh and at that point we gathered everyone around the combat table and it was really fun uh as uh each ship got the chance and they successfully made the jump out there's lots of cheering and they're happy and uh yeah i think it was a it was a really really good way to end the game some things that uh one of the important things i learned from this game is that the players love having a like a solid ending like that which is mm. really hard to do i think in pretty much all the other mega games we've had but it just sort of fell into place for this one that we could do it so i'm not sure how generally uh applicable that is to just um running other mega games but we were lucky in this case and i think it gave the, the players a really satisfying ending to the day yeah, and you guys are aware that I've been having that conversation and that thought process of how you apply narrative and endings and that kind of thing, yep. story arcs. Um, it's a, it's constant feedback from people, and sometimes it's it's a very difficult thing to to balance with this game. Yeah, I think you're right. The setting does lend itself to that um, because it's my experience in Den of Wolves was very very similar. At the end of the game, orchestrated or not, I don't think it was. It was very similar. There was ships exploding. There was one final jump. There was everyone, um, the warship hanging around, waiting for everyone to to get out. Yeah. And it was it was very emotive. Like it was a very immersive moment. Um, so yeah, definitely that sort of setting 
really lines that up and it sounds like it was a good time. I, I saw all the photos of that last round and it did look like a bit <laughs> of a believe, highlight. James, you got a video of the entire thing, didn't you? Yeah, uh, I might cut that down and post something up. Yeah, perfect. That'd be great. Um, all right, well, I th- we should probably start wrapping ourselves up, but um, uh, I just wanted to um, thank you guys for coming and having a chat. Um, I thank wanted you. to ask you what, what's what's next. This was your first design. It was your second time being involved behind the scenes, and it was your, what, your sixth game seventh. or seventh maybe? Um, what's, what's happening next for you two? Uh, James, you can go first. Uh, so... <laughs> Yep, I'll be hanging around CD Mega Gamers and uh, hopefully helping you, Pat, run four games next year, including a rerun of So Say We All. So I'm keen to uh, have another look over the rules, tighten things up, make a few changes, and get that ready for another game. Amazing. Yep, that sounds really good. And Justin? Uh, yeah, unfortunately, uh, I will not be able to hang around as part of Sydney Mega Gamers. I'm a. Uh going to be moving to Adelaide in a few months. Uh, but all is not lost. Uh, if all goes well, you might uh, might hear of the fledgling Adelaide Mega Gamers cropping up sometime next year. Um, I'll definitely be looking to run So Say We All again, but I've, got, I've started coming up with some of my ideas for uh, some new Mega Games as well. So I'm going to look into fleshing those out. See, I have to find some, yeah. find some new friends some new moderators <laughs> to help me and then we'll see if we can get some interstate mega games going we'll have to start hunting for some cheap flights <laughs> um to, to adult um that sounds really good very exciting um there's it's it's really the an era of mega games i think for us uh, melbourne and brisbane are, are just taking off the same way we are and we've got some people in perth starting to talk we'll about to it create the australian mega gamers society that's right. That's right. That's the next step. Um, all right. Awesome. Well, thank you both. Uh, do you have anything? No, you've just kind of done that. Yeah. Thank you both right, for thank chatting. You, um, thanks for, for designing the game, the, the first game that has been run in Sydney uh, by our group that I didn't have to put blood, sweat and tears into. I feel like we were worse off for it though, Pat. I feel like we need you. You're a crucial part <laughs> of the mega game uh, environment. Well, it's arguable, but um, I'm trying to just I'm trying to get away from that as much as possible. I promise. Um, but yeah, thank you both. Um, right. uh, I do want to. I'm going to quickly thank our moderator team who helped us on the day. I think uh, thank you to Tony, Ali, Steve, Sash, Griff, and Megan for helping us. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, the I think the major reason why the game went so well was the amazing job that they did helping us run it. Um, yeah, without them, we this game wouldn't have happened. So thank you very much, guys, for giving your time and helping facilitate this. Yeah, I want to particularly single out uh, Mac Griffiths <laughs> for uh, he did a lot of work on the uh, Shiva gameplay. So for them, we had a lot of uh, events that they would sort of he would narrate out to them and they would make decisions and it would he would reward them with certain things or it would lead to different things they could do. Uh, and he pretty much came up with all the ideas and ran that. Yeah, he really and took kept that and ran with it the whole day. So he did a really good job with that. And uh, I also want to specifically thank Stephen Hughes, the, one of the moderators, for spending the last week before the game oh, making uh, all the pedantically picking apart all our rules uh, <laughs> and 
pointing out all the things we hadn't thought of or all the ways they could be exploited and it really helped tighten up the game and there were a few things that did pop up on the day that were sorted out yeah yeah i'm sure you uh i'm sure you've known steve's been on your mod teams before pat and he just has a real <laughs> a real talent for like picking problems that you haven't noticed and highlighting issues that players will no doubt pounce on yes yes definitely i've been through that gauntlet um and and, and yeah and i can echo the the sentiments like it's really important having a, a good a good team who are really invested in it and they always are um, we get some really good sorts through through our community so um that's awesome all right thanks guys um hopefully i'll see you both soon and i'm looking forward to so say we all again next year and I'm looking forward to hearing about the Adelaide Mecca games. <laughs> Hopefully. Thank you very much, Pat. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Thank guys. You, Thanks again for tuning in and listening. A quick correction this week uh, from our previous episode where Jack and I talked about getting started with mega games. I um, referred everyone to a a game called Relics of the Fall, which is a a mega game by Crisis Games. And I incorrectly mentioned that it was actually inspired by the board game Scythe, which I believe there is a mega game out there of that variety. But um, Relics of the Fall is actually a um, post-apocalyptic fusion of Mad Max meets Mech Warrior. Um, it's been run a couple of times in the UK. It's available on the Mega Game Assembly site. It's also right over there on the, the Crisis Games website. And there's links to both of them in the description. So apologies for that. And um, thanks for the correction. Um, tune in next episode. Jack and I are going to follow up our getting started discussion. And we're going to move on to looking at our design process and what that looks like and how we sort of get from concept to game day. So hopefully you'll you'll tune in then.